you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, Harvey Weinstein has been convicted of rape and sexual assault. So how can the industry evolve in the wake of his trial? Then, film composer Tamar Kali is breaking barriers in a field dominated by white men. But lasting change, she says, will require a cultural shift. This whole diversity on trend thing, it's like, that's insane. It's like, how can someone's humanity be on trends? Like, listen to what you're saying. There's just a lot of dismantling and a lot of real deep work that needs to be done. And a filmmaker finds inspiration working as an L.A. rideshare driver. That's Today in the Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Harvey Weinstein is now a convicted rapist. The verdict came this Monday when a New York jury found the 67-year-old Weinstein guilty of two counts, third-degree rape and first-degree criminal sexual act. Here to talk about what has and hasn't changed since the allegations against Weinstein first came to light is Melissa Silverstein. She's the founder of the blog Women and Hollywood and the artistic director of the Athena Film Festival. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So what does this verdict mean for women in the industry and how might it change the dynamic within Hollywood, if at all? Well, I I can't underestimate the significance of this verdict, that it wasn't just accusations, it's an actual verdict of guilt, um, and that the women, the upwards of 100 of them who have accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault and sexual harassment, you know, finally have vindication because so many of them for so many years kept this inside or told people and everybody said, no one will believe you. He's in the powerful position and you should just keep it quiet if you want a career. And so Hollywood has really been built on the silence of women for the last several decades in many aspects, not just related to Mr. Weinstein, but also related to so many other issues that have kept women out of positions of power and access. So this is big, really, really big. I want to ask you more about positions of power and access, because even though these crimes involve sex, it's really about power and the power dynamic that allowed it to happen. How important is it that women as filmmakers, as producers, as agents, as studio executives, you name the career path, have more jobs in Hollywood? And how does that change the potential for the next Harvey Weinstein to not be able to get away with it? I just think that that is the core issue that needs to change. We need to see more women and more people of color in positions of power. We need to 
create mechanisms for people to step into these positions, mentor, hire, sponsor. And once it seems that people actually have permission now, something, you know, click went off in the proverbial heads around Hollywood, which is like, they said, okay, it's not okay anymore for me not to have any women directors on a list that I'm looking for, or for me not to have inclusion in a writer's room. It's unacceptable. And I think the Hollywood executives react to that really um, profoundly. And so hopefully we're going to continue to see more access to gatekeeper roles, because once you have people who are different in gatekeeper roles, they bring in different voices. And we see that all across this industry. It It's really not rocket science. It's just about giving people access and opportunity. Well, let's talk about access and opportunity. Last year, according to Stacey Smith at USC, was a record year for female filmmakers. They got a whopping 10.6% of the jobs behind the camera. You are the co-founder of the Athena Film Festival, which just opened. What are you trying to do in terms of promoting the work of women who are working as filmmakers? We have upwards of 70% female filmmakers at the Athena Film Festival, and we're focused on uh, female leaders on screen. And we want people to understand the leadership capacity of women in all facets of our culture and why we need more women leaders. This is really a fundamental piece of the work of the Athena Film Festival, which takes place at Barnard College. And I'm in partnership with the Athena Center for Leadership Studies in this work. And so what we really try to do through our films and our parody pipeline program, which like today we have an alumni day for all the people who have been in our labs for the last several years. And we are giving them concrete information to break into this industry and to you know, build um, networks and connect people together so that we can understand that there is an abundance of women out there. There is an abundance of talent. And we just need, again, that access and opportunity. Many years ago, it was always about this scarcity mentality, right? There are not enough women. There are not enough women who are talented. They don't make certain kinds of movies. That was always a false narrative that was perpetuated. And so what we're really trying to do is, you know, switch the narrative to narrative of abundance, which we know has always been the case. We're talking with Melissa Silverstein, the founder and publisher of Women in Hollywood. I want to ask you about accountability. Earlier this week, uh, the opera star Placido Domingo issued an apology to the women who had accused him of sexual harassment. And then yesterday he backpedaled on his apology. I'm wondering what needs to happen in terms of accountability. A prison sentence for Harvey Weinstein potentially on March 11th is one kind of accountability. What about people who misbehave actually owning up to their actions or, I guess, in the better case, not actually doing them in the first place? Uh, Yeah, that would be the ideal. Um, We need to create a culture where this behavior is unacceptable. And so it doesn't even come into your mind that the way that you um, gain power and gain power over women is by using them inappropriately and sexually assaulting them. So hopefully as generations evolve, we won't see these kinds of acts being perpetuated, but it's also about creating systems um, within the industry that won't allow that to happen. And so what we need to do is break down the systems that allow these types of acts to occur um, and, and make sure that people are ostracized in the way that Harvey Weinstein has been ostracized and people who enabled it 
the entire industry enabled this. Everybody knew it was, as I wrote, the loudest silence in Hollywood. But he still does not think he's done anything wrong. So I think really it's also about educating people about consent. So what the message needs to be is that this behavior is unacceptable. You will not be able to be successful in any facet of our entire culture if this is how you behave. Melissa Silverstein is the founder and publisher of Women in Hollywood. Melissa, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks so much, John. Coming up on The Frame, musician and composer Tamar Colley explains why film composing is like a dance. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist education reporter Julia Barajas. Community colleges transform people's lives, so I explore how students, fresh out of high school or going back to school for the first time in years, achieve their goals and how colleges help them do that. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The Brooklyn-based film composer Tamar Kali has had a busy year, and it's only February. Three films featuring her music played at the Sundance Film Festival last month. The Last Thing He Wanted by director Dee Rees, Josephine Decker's film Shirley, and Kitty Green's The Assistant. And it's all because back in 2017, Dee Rees took a chance on her. Before that, Tamar Kali was playing in a hard rock band and an experimental string ensemble. I asked her about making the transition into film scoring. For me, it was really about the technical aspects, learning the language of film score composing in terms of cues, how many minutes of music, um, you know, mock-ups, submitting, the, you know, that type of stuff. And previously, I would just do like minimal styled, almost four-track demo style demos when I would demo music to my band. But now I had to like represent uh, a string septet or whatever the case may be. But in terms of writing for film, it's 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 just collaboration. It's like if you're playing live with other instruments and you know how not to step on each other's toes. It's the same when you're sitting with a scene and you're writing to picture. I'm thinking about the atmospheric sound. I'm thinking about the ambient sound. I'm thinking about the timbre of the actor's voices, as well as being stimulated by the image itself. And is it storytelling in a different form? Because if you're writing a song, performing a song that has lyrics, like people can read into the lyrics, whatever they want to read, but you don't have lyrics. You have image and you have to make sure that what you're saying is complementing, not fighting those images. Totally. It's a dance. And the example that I would give in, in like one example that really represented the dance is when I did my first film score for Mudbound, there's a scene where this very distraught woman who is like nine months pregnant decides that she's going to murder her husband. And the actress was absolutely wonderful. And the scene was so powerful. You need to take me to town. I'm gonna kill Carl. And then she does this really intense guttural scream at one point, and you see that the space is there for her, and the piece is composed to not necessarily complement that, but to give space for her to release it. Come on. I 
want to play a bit of your score for the upcoming film, Shirley. It's about the life of the writer Shirley Jackson, and this track is called The Summoning. Sounds like we might be in church, we might be in front of a choir, but it's not a not a church that I want to spend a lot of time in. Uh, tell us about where that started and and how you start hearing a theme for a score. So um, when I met with the director, Josephine Decker, um, I had the pleasure of seeing a rough cut of the film. And I mentioned to her that it felt like a fever dream to me. And she had spoken to me about how she was very interested in utilizing the female voice as a solo instrument in the score. And, you know, indie film, small budget. So I said, okay, in addition to, you know, strings and piano, we'll have the voice as a focus. But I did all the vocals myself. So that's just you yeah. on a couple different loops? All kinds of things. <laughs> Layers and, you know. So um, that's that's definitely one element within the piece. And how the voice is used is very much in a kind of like a spiritual magical realm because you have three voices in terms of characters. You have a ghost woman and you have Shirley Jackson and then you have the young woman who's staying with her. And the idea of three voices, a trinity of voices, is a motif that I play with throughout. It's not always the case that a composer gets to see a finished film. A lot of times you're writing off a script. Maybe they want some temp cues to cut to. Is it your preference to be able to see something? Because it's not always possible. Um, You know, I like to say I like to dress the baby. But at the same time, it depends because, you know, everyone is coming to the the work with a certain amount of experience and understanding, right? So if you're working with a director who's extremely comfortable with music and has a lot of knowledge of your work and trust, then it's easy to jump in during, um, you know, on the script. You know, if they are saying, essentially, I want to see what reading my work is going to inspire with you and if we can use that as a foundation. That's a great That's a great thing. Or if they're just open to hearing your ideas. I want to talk about the inner life of characters and I'm going to cite a film you just scored. It's Kitty Green's film, The Assistant, and this cue is called Girl Jane. Is that kind of like a detuned cello? Is that what that is? Or It's not detuned at all. It's just cello and viola. But it's haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like something's not right in the world. And that is the closing piece. And it's called Girl Jane. Jane is the lead character. And I, and I, I hope that it translated some of the, the weight of what she was feeling as this young person who didn't really have a voice or is not in a position of power. No, this is a story about an assistant to a character who we never see, but certainly reminds a lot of people of Harvey Weinstein. And she knows, like everybody else around him, that bad things are happening and she's powerless. She even goes to the HR department 
and they essentially say, do you want your job or do you want to be replaced? And so much of that score is about what she's feeling internally and how she can't put words to it because she's powerless. Yeah, I mean, that's the piece that you're left with as you're sitting in your seat dealing with what you've just bore witness to. So I'm often creating like light motifs for characters. And even, um, for instance, in Mudbound, the farm itself was a character. So there was definitely a theme that the farm had because there was this weight and this heaviness and, and, and the oppression of ages and legacy and disappointment and all those things. So yeah, I mean, not just characters as in traditional person, but sometimes a place and a space too. It can be very exciting to give voice to those things. I'm going to give you a math quiz, and I suspect you're going to fail like everybody does. This is a 2018 study by the University of Southern California that looks at the top 100 grossing fictional films every year Mm -hmm. from 2007 to 2017. 1,200 men wrote music on those movies. How many women? Three or less? 16. Oh, good. I was, it was my idea was a whole lot bleaker. Uh, I mean, we're still yeah, not, like you know, we're one, still not cooking like with one, grease. But point five percent. Wow. No, and it also feels like part of the solution to that sample is to make sure that women are lifting up each other because the three films you had at Sundance, Dee Rees, Josephine Decker, mm-hmm. Kitty Green, all the directors mm-hmm. are women, and if that's what it takes. That's sad, but maybe that's what it takes. That's that's what's been happening. A lot of times, as a person who exists in an intersection of marginalized groups, these communities take care of themselves. They take care of each other. But what we need is as a society to be on board with equity. And I think the big part is power dynamic and fearfulness. You know, For those of us who's, who've lived in the margins our entire you know, career— um, it's not difficult to have those things in mind, to, to, to be conscious in that way. But I think for people who are very much a part of the establishment, there's an MO that they function around. And thinking equitably is almost like being brave. I mean, but it's just a reflection of our society. I mean, look, look at what we've just experienced right now with the impeachment. Like, people are afraid to do their job. So if people are afraid to do their job, of course people will be afraid to step outside of the very traditional sexist, you know, <laughs> culture that exists in there. You know, and it's it's cowardice in a lot of ways. Um, I know that when Dee had the experience of not being able to hire me as composer on Bessie, she made sure that moving forward, she was going to be in a position where she had that say. A lot of people aren't necessarily interested in taking that type of stance. Right. That she says, I get composer approval or I don't work for you. Yeah. You know, it's hard. And I hope out of this moment that comes is not a phase, but change, because that's the hard part. You know, this whole diversity on trend thing. It's like, that's insane. It's like, how can someone's humanity be on trends? Like, listen to what you're saying. There's just a lot of dismantling and a lot of real deep work that needs to be done. And I pray that unlike what we've been seeing in the political arena, that we can muster enough Um, emotional and intellectual energy to do the work that needs to be done. Tamara Colley is a musician and composer. Her last film was The Assistant. Upcoming is the last thing he wanted. And Shirley, Tamara Colley, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Cut 
Coming up on The Frame, actor and filmmaker Linus Phillips has worked as a rideshare driver in Los Angeles. It's not the best job he's had, but it gives him plenty of material for a new comedy series. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The Ride is a short-form series that premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. In it, writer, director, and actor Linus Phillips plays a rideshare driver with a dismal one-star rating. The reason? He dispenses lots of spiritual and life advice to his passengers, whether they're interested or not. When I talked with Phillips about The Ride in Park City, he explained that the series was inspired by his own experiences as a Lyft driver in L.A. I've been doing rideshare driving for the past like two and a half years since moving back to L.A. from New York. And I was really struggling financially. And it's in one way kind of empowering that you can do it, you know, and just make money, you know, driving around. But it's it's weird. It's a, you know, it's kind of an invasion of your little space, you know, cause you're w- driving around with all your thoughts and feelings. And then some, you know, you're like thinking too much about your ex-girlfriend or something. And then people come in your car and it's some bossy LA producer guy. And it just is really hard. You know, also just for me personally, like identity and ego stuff come up. Cause you're like, oh, I, I wish I didn't have to be doing this. Because what happens in your series is not only the things that you say to passengers, but the things that you overhear passengers saying to friends, colleagues, lovers, business relationships yeah. over the phone that they think in some ways that they're in a private space, but they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah, and they some people you can tell they get in and they kind of just assume that you're not there. I've even heard people have conversations about how pathetic it is that people are doing rideshare driving. And I'm like, hello, I'm right here, <laughs> you know? So in real life, there's like a scene where I'm, you know, telling a a woman that I'm proud of her for standing up to her boyfriend on the phone. And that was real. I really did do that. It it was just, and the the character is very like me, but an exaggerated version. Like in the show, my character Wayne is more triggered by the fact that she ends up not standing up for herself with this guy. I think you're in a really bad mood and I'm going to upset you regardless. If it wasn't this, it'd be something else that got under your skin. Are you kidding me? Is my fault? You're not gonna answer her? You know what, why don't you just uh, stay out of this, okay? Please? Dude, I'm sorry, I don't mean to butt in, but she's being really vulnerable right now. It'd be nice if you could just acknowledge that. Okay, why don't you pull over here? I think we're gonna get a, another car. Yeah, okay, I will pull over. Great. Because you really need to acknowledge your feelings, dude. Okay, thanks a lot. Had you taken notes about epic, memorable rides? Had you just kind of gone back into your memory to try to remember the stories? Even if it's fiction, are you basing a lot of the episodes on things that actually happened? 
it was more just like the energy of like me as a person who in real life was getting over a breakup, you know, moved back to LA, you know, in real life, I like two years ago, I was so depressed and I discovered Eckhart Tolle and it really was monumental, the effect that his teaching had on me. But what works for you or your character may not necessarily work for the people in your car. Yes. And that's part of the dynamic of the series is that you can try to impart your version of wisdom and life skills to them, but it may not work for them at all. In fact, it may hurt. Yeah. Just from going through hard times emotionally, I learned so much about listening. And, you know, I've had great therapists, but I've also had friends who, you know, maybe don't know how to listen. They're just trying to help you because when you're feeling sad or brokenhearted, you just want to feel like you're not alone. But when someone is immediately trying to tell you what to do, it's it, it's uh, entwined with a form of judgment, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, so, it makes total you know, sense. So I really wanted to say that with the show, and my character kind of goes through this and realizes that a little bit more. So much of the ride is set inside your car, and it's you and one or two passengers, I think. How are you filming this? Because you don't have a lot of money, and it's not like you have you know, a removable roof where you can bring in cameras. What does the physical production look like in terms of how you're recording this, performing it, and driving without crashing. Yeah, that well, that was the biggest thing that was so scary. We're driving up and down this street, this busy street in Highland Park. And the one time I like pulled the car over and I was like, guys, I'm just not even sure I can keep us safe right now. I need a break, you know, because you're like, I'm directing, acting, kind of editing in my head. And then there's this camera in front of my face glued to the window. We, we had just three cameras on the dash, one on me, one on one actor in the back seat, one on the other, you know? And then the the DP, Nate Miller, who did a great job, was like pressed right out of frame. like In the car? In the car. Like on the floor of the passenger yeah, seat? Yeah, like he's in some of the shots. I had to like crop him out because it was like impossible to not, you know, he, so his like ribs were like pressed against the door handle. Every time I made a U-turn, he was like, oh, dude. And I was like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And is it fully scripted because you have so many great, not very well known, but really talented comedians. Yeah. Are you throwing them things to see how they're going to react? Or do they basically know what they have to say or are there parameters? Uh, almost everyone was like great and very comfortable with improv, which was really important to me. But it was pretty scripted, more so than I ideally love. But um, because of the time, I was like, okay, we got to do this. Um, but the one with Punky Johnson, who's hilarious, uh, she's a comedian and actor. And, um, we had only like literally like 25 minutes to shoot that scene. And I'm like, okay, I think we'll get two takes, Punky. We're going to just drive down the street. We'll just throw the script out. We know the beats. Let's just do it. And she was like, I got you. Let's do it. And uh, yeah, so there was more improv in that one. Linus, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Linus Phillips, the writer, director, and star of The Ride. It's an indie episodic series that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. And that'll do it for this week. I'm John Horn. The show is produced by Darby Maloney, Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin, with help this week from Itzy Quintinia. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The frame's opening theme music is by Taylor McFerrin, and our senior producer is Oscar Garza. We're back here Monday from the Moan Broadcast Center. Have a great weekend.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.